0: The energy entrepreneur, unleashing technology and opportunity in Texas. Interview with Jessen Bradshaw, episode 55. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Jessen Bradshaw, CEO at Energy Ogre, a Texas-based consumer energy company. They help consumers save money by choosing the best energy company that can deliver their electricity, or gas, or both, at the least cost. It was a real honor to have Jessen on the podcast. As you'll hear, he's a true energy entrepreneur. Our discussion really delves into the opportunities he's been able to leverage from an open and competitive market in Texas and across the United States. In my book, Jessen is a true energy pioneer. He's able to find market niches where special skills assist his clients, for example, from large financial institutions to average families. He delivers solutions because of his deep insight in how the market works. I want to emphasize the importance of the market and regulations, because to learn from this episode, you need to understand that when a business works with minimal regulations, new and radically innovative technologies and services can develop. This episode is a case study, welcome to my class I guess, in how Texas unleashed new technologies and kept prices low by reducing the power of monopolies and assisting the entrance of new generation technologies. We are talking about renewables and gas fired generation, listen closely, because these replace the aging coal fleet that was limping along before deregulation. Deregulation, neoliberalism, all these have kind of somewhat bad or bad bad connotations. We'll hear from our discussion in about the first half of the episode. We really get into what was unleashed when Texas deregulated and when companies were able to come into the market and build new generation plants. It's it's really interesting and, and I think it's a very good case study in what can happen when there's lower levels of regulation in the energy sector. In fact, Justin states Texas is now the fifth biggest wind well, wind producer in the world, and it produces more power from wind than 25 other states combined. Actually, it's a quarter of all US wind power. How did this all happen? So you gotta listen to the episode, of course, but these low regulatory barriers are really interesting. A Little bit overview here as well for the rest of the episode, Justin embraces a low regulatory burden for enabling the electricity market to really develop into one based on renewables and gas that is cost competitive. He pays the same as 20 years ago, he says, but there's much more renewable in the system now. Unleashing the power of capital can be, can be done in the energy sector, but there is a demonstrable balance that needs to be struck between regulation, including financial regulation and investments that modernize and advance the energy system without wasting too much money. But then I think we would never have the railroads if we didn't have boom and bust. Whatever your taste level is or risk level for regulation bankruptcy, this episode delivers a real insider perspective on how markets work over more than 20 years of deregulation. To cap this boom and bust cycle, Justin even had Enron as a competitor and you'll hear about that. Finally, we learned too that Justin's entrepreneurial ventures in the United States gas and electricity markets were real opportunities that he saw because of his knowledge in working in the sector. And this is why I kind of nominate him as like a prime and a top energy entrepreneur because he demonstrates real skills for understanding how the market worked, how people didn't know what they were doing and then finding the business case and building up over time and even adapting. So Energy Ogre, which is his company now, really demonstrates an evolution over time. So when you listen to the episode, listen to how we talk about how the market works the generation plants that came into it but also then second half of the episode is really about his his path into entrepreneurship and how he how it changed over time as the market changed as well as the market matured his his firm had to change and now he's much more consumer facing on the residential side rather than dealing with large banks and financial institutions during this boom and bust cycle. Overall, I would have to say the stories that Justin tells us really show he did not take the easy path to set up businesses and that really there was a strong market niche that others did not find. So he took a highly complex landscape and along with his partner, they had the knowledge to navigate and build two very successful businesses. What he is doing is actually, in my opinion, beyond rocket science, because the longer I look at the energy sector, and the complexities between business and government and of course homeowners or other companies active and the role that regulation plays and the barriers of entry and even trying to stay in business, it is really complex. With that, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast is where we try to spread and we do spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. And now, for this week's episode. This week, we are speaking with Justin Bradshaw. He has co-founded two energy companies, Fulcrum Energy and Energy Ogre. He has a deep knowledge of energy trading and energy savings. As an energy entrepreneur, I thought Justin would be great to uh, have a guest. Sorry, I'll redo that. As an energy entrepreneur, I thought Justin would be a great guest to find out about the challenges and opportunities in building from the ground up an energy company. Justin, thanks so much for coming on to the My Energy 2050 podcast.
1: Yeah, super excited to be here. I, I think there's some super exciting and interesting things we get to talk about today. So uh, I'm I'm excited to visit with you. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I'm just putting together a course on energy and innovation and entrepreneurship. So I think you're the right person to talk to about this. And I can find out more so I can inform the students even even greater.
1: Well, you'll get what you pay for but uh, I'll get, I'll <laughs> certainly give you my two cents no whether I'm the perfect person or not but yeah've I've spent so long in this space and it's been interesting to watch it evolve over the years uh, from when I started in the mid 90s when it really started to open at the federal level with 888 89 being implemented all the way through to today with you know the massive change that's going on in, in the in the constituency of what our generation mix looks like so it's definitely been uh, one of those things, uh, as you talk about entrepreneurship and, and how this folds into the future, it's always funny to me that when I first got into this business almost 30 years ago, as as the dynamic part of the change in the electricity space, uh, you know, a lot of people would think, well, this that marketplace would get to its equilibrium point quickly, and what we find is that there's just as much chaos and discombobulation and opportunity today. In fact, you you could argue that there's more today than there was at the dawn of us uh, opening up these markets. So it's a it's a great topic. It's a great time. Uh, and especially for folks that, that are, you know, really looking at this and want to learn a little bit more about what's going on in the electricity space.
0: Excellent. Actually, Justin, so I would like to go back to the 90s then. Uh, sure. And, and I was much younger then. So that, that's a great time to talk. Well, me too. I mean, yes. I mean, I tried
1: to tell you I, thir- I was 13 when I started doing this. So. Oh, excellent.
0: Well, uh, yeah, so 13. So uh, it was a much different time. It was Not mo- true. Not okay, true, it wasn't not, not totally
1: true. Uh, but it these was guys a, can't see me. They're, no, no, but it's just, it's, just a, it's a joke, right?
0: Okay, but but it was a time of deregulation. There was a lot of change. I mean, e, uh, new gas-fired power plants were basically a new thing. So there was a this tremendous um, uh, remo- there was a removal of regulation and new th- new uh, ownership structures coming into the marketplace. I would that's my description of it. Maybe maybe you could describe what the nineteen nineties um and i think you were involved in ericott the the regional um energy
1: system there yeah actually i traded in the west i traded the entire country back then so and it was pretty much the same um if if you're trying to get an idea of the lay of the land if we go back even a little bit earlier than that into the 70s and 80s and prior to all this what happened is you know if you have a a utility, whether it's a municipal utility or it's an investor-owned utility or it's a public power entity, they had their franchise service territories and they had a vertical integration. They've had customers. They figured out how to build transmission lines to get to them. They made a 20-year planning cycle to figure out how much generation resources that they needed. And then they tried to get those recovered. And then they would have somebody that basically said, yes, you can charge that or no, you can't charge that. So it was a pretty uh, undynamic environment. You know, it was the if, if there is such a thing as an unsexy environment. Uh, and and <clears throat> what what happened in the as a result of sort of the oil shocks and some of the embargo issues that the domestic United States was dealing with in the in the 70s. The first kind of big break in all that was when they, they started a. a and I, I can't remember. I think it's the. It was called PERPA. It was the Public Utilities Regulated Purchasing Act, or I think that's what it was. But we all called it PERPA. But what it what it allowed was independent companies to come in because they're more efficient and work with uh, load centers, you know, in these utility areas. If you could sell a product that had dual purpose, you could put a cogeneration facility, which is one that makes electricity, but it also, as opposed to let's just say uh, a refinery. Where they might use a, a big steam boiler to make a lot of steam that they need to use for their processing. Well, if you could put a power plant in, generate some electricity with that fuel and still make the steam, then there was, there was a whole series of things. And what what that allowed for was the owners of those plants to force the local utility to buy their power. So it was now, now all of a sudden you start to break, you break the envelope a little bit where, Hey, you know, uh, we're going to be more efficient, and this is going to be overall better from an, an energy efficiency perspective for the economy. And And so you, you're breaking the monopoly of the utilities to build all the generation and own all the generation and service territories. And so the, that was that had happened immediately prior to deregulation. But what, what happened at the federal level is all, all that really happened was uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, Decided that you know what they'd seen in the natural gas business as they liberalized that market is you have to give people the free ability to compete for transportation space because if you don't do that all the local utilities will strangle competition and they'll they'll you know there's no incentive for someone to go build a power plant if uh, you know they don't want to be like a railroad company employee in the 1800s, they don't want to be like stuck only being able to sell their output to the local utility. They need to be able to say, okay, well, what would it cost me to move my electricity through to sell to your neighbor? And that's really what 888 and order 888 and 889 did together is they, they created this open access transmission tariff that really set the rules for all of the entities that, that, the FERC, uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that they regulated. And so it was a huge, I mean, a gargantuan step change from the way business was done at that time. And so it was the very beginning point of a a, a bit of liberalization that allowed for some of the dynamic growth. Now, all of a sudden, we can not put ratepayers on the hook for building new power plants, but we can have private industry put that capital at risk. And maybe they can earn a return. Maybe they'll go bankrupt. And what's happened is a lot of those guys have gone bankrupt more than once, you know, so, but it, it didn't come on the backs of the rate payers. So now all of a sudden we're finding ways to, to introduce brand new efficient technologies into the system that that we're not burdening on, on a, on a going for 30 years, uh, you know, a, a rate paying base that, that, it, you know, stuck with those costs and those decisions. Right. So, you know, it was, it was the beginning part of, of, that beginning to be very dynamic. Uh,
0: J- Justin, that's really what you just said there about new technologies. Because at this time then, so so you're talking about these power plants being built and then making sure that they have access to the, to the transmission system and the distribution system to sell their electricity, um, but but you're talking about um, is opening this space up to new technology. Could you expand on that?
1: For sure. Uh, you know. When you're looking at these things, if you were making these decisions as an, let's just say an investor-owned utility way back when, you're making these decisions with 10 years, you know, 10 years foresight, you're you're looking at, um, you're you're trying to get these things built. It's going to take you two or three years to build them. You know, if I have a huge fleet of coal plants and I'm an investor-owned utility, I might look at what kind of technologies I need to have as I expect to see load, but I'm going to try to use my common infrastructure as much as I can. And so there's a lot of, you know, what my economics professors used to tell me in college was this notion of path dependence on a lot of the decision making that we that we undertake. And that's true because there is some scale that that some of these entities have in maintaining the momentum and the trajectory of their legacy business. And when we start talking about opening some of these things up at the very beginning with PERPA, that that was a technology cogeneration facilities. That was a major step change in terms of deployed technologies. You know, it's not doing anything that was, you know, some new, uh, it wasn't a new discovery in, you know, thermal uh, dynamics. It, it had to do with a much more efficient uh, repackaging of technologies, but those, those things would not have been able to get off the ground were it not for this liberalization that occurred there. And so the same thing is true if you look at it, there are very few new coal plants that have been built since the mid 90s, the vast majority of the generation that's been added. And and one important point that that needs to be made is I think a lot of parts of the country knew that deregulation at the federal level, at the wholesale level was coming and they didn't know exactly what that meant for them. And so you had situations like in California and to a certain extent, situations like here in Texas where. There was virtually no investment made in infrastructure in the early to late 90s because none of the incumbents knew what was going to happen. So they had every disincentive. So we had this very large economic expansion in the US in the 90s. We had no more real infrastructure that was being built as, as the, these rules were getting figured out. So by the time we opened, starting to open things up, that adds to this dynamicism that we saw. Because, you know, we had a bunch of demand that had been growing with no additional supply, no, no new resources. And now we have this liberalization that's occurring that you have uh, an explosion of new potential uh, solutions providers or entrants into the marketplace. So, um, yeah, it was it was it was an interesting time for sure.
0: Uh-huh. Excellent. And so at this time, then you were an uh, energy trader. Is, it, is that I right? I was. Uh-huh. I was.
1: I was just a lowly, just <laughs> you know, gum on the bottom of someone's shoe, energy trader. You, That's right. You
0: got to start someplace, but but you were one. Of, I would say one of the first, in a sense, right? One of the first in a, in a very active market. And yeah. what did um, so uh, and at that time, how? Oh, my my question to you, yeah, I lost it for a minute there, but is the action or reaction of the incumbent utilities? in trying to prevent this? So if you're an energy trader, um, and you're trading uh, electricity, let's say this, or maybe gas, then what were the incumbents doing at this time, uh, trying to make your job harder, I guess?
1: Yeah, it was, uh, you you know, there was some pretty hard and fast rules around stuff that was bright lines of what they could do and couldn't do. And, you know, uh, utilities are pretty risk averse entities. So they, they, uh, all, all those folks, but you know, think about it for a lot of the folks that were in the space ahead of time. You know, they may have been in for 20 years. You know, they have a long history and they kind of expected to get, you know, have another 20 years and have, you know, and so some folks were like, hey, this is awesome. I get to learn something new and I can. So you had folks kind of on both sides as a general rule. So they used to call it power marketing. You know, we were power marketers and we were trading and we would go to conferences and stuff and, you know the utility folks, a lot of them that didn't like us would use, you know, you guys are marketeers, you know, you guys are the, you know, it was denigrate. But, but yeah, there was, um, you know, some, some folks really adopted and, and embraced it and wanted to be part of it. And you know the compensation structure, because you're taking advantage of locational price arbitrage, you're unlocking value by being more dynamic. And so as a result, the compensation structure in the more liberalized areas was just way larger than the, oh, the, yeah. the legacy business. And so all the folks that that were like excited about that, that were part of the legacy business, they all wanted to come over onto our side of the fence. So it it was there was definitely a lot of resistance at the beginning. And they would, uh, um, you know, they would they would pull some shenanigans from time to time and make life difficult on you. But pretty quickly, uh, the grass was so much greener for so many of the folks that were in the business at the time that, you know, the ranks started to swell with some of the the, the men and women that were, um, that really had an idea. They, they had that this vision for how this was all going to play out. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And I'm going to like
0: just jump way forward to, I'm going to jump way forward to, to now. That's okay. Um, yeah. And, and. Now, I mean, we had, especially in Texas, you had the cold snap last year in Europe, mm-hmm. we have very high electricity and gas prices, the same thing in the United States. And so this kind of free market, I would say, or open market structure that we have now, how do you how do you, because I feel like there's a big pushback in the need to have regulated prices for and actually, this gets into your business, but we'll, we'll get there in a minute. Sure. But, but how does this, how do we remember the benefits that this opening up of the market to other, new entrants brought? Um,
1: sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I, what I can tell you is in Texas, we see it every day. Um, I think that, you know, I can't speak as eloquently as to what is happening in continental Europe in terms of, you know, how those markets have opened and the state of competitiveness Um but I can certainly talk to Texas and, you know, it's interesting here what, 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 happened to be a coincidence. And we have like real deregulation here at the, at the retail level. We don't have, and it, we're probably, I mean, I really can't think of another state in the United States that actually is really deregulated. Georgia is on the gas side, but you know, here, there's no, you know, te- what happens in a lot of States here in the U S is they're quasi deregulated so what will happen is the legacy incumbent utility either is still sending out all the bills and collecting everything or you know and then you just have a a, some your provider is like a, a name at the top of a box somewhere or what's happened is is that there's a game that gets played because the legacy provider is is on a tariff structure they have this legacy tariff that might you know if anyone's ever Dug, dug through the old regulated entity tariffs. There was usually like some little items that were in there. You're going to get charged this per kilowatt hour. And then there was like this big, like black box that said fuel adjustment clause or some, you know, some like there's no, they just put whatever they want in there kind of situation. So that's the way some of the regulated markets or the deregulated markets that we have here is that you have all the competitive players that are dealing with what's actually happening in the marketplace for fuel and for wholesale commodity electricity, and then you have the utility tariff that's this formulaic structure that might be a lagging indicator. Let's just say, for example, let's say that it's a natural gas indexed or some other. So there's this game that gets played because that's a totally, the tariff structure is an uneconomic you know, structure. So what's really odd about that is that, I don't know this, but I would presume, I haven't looked closely enough, but the, the the entities that are regulated uh, or, or that tariff structure, some some periods of time, they're going to make some money and a lot of periods of time, they're going to lose some money because folks would switch back and forth. But they're not going to they're not going to lose money for long, like they're going to recover all their losses from the entire market. So what in in a certain sense, it's this it's this idea that it's deregulated and it's kind of kabuki theater it's not really <laughs> happening right so it's actually kind of worst of both worlds um in that space so <clears throat> and some some may be on that spectrum from one place to another but here in texas it's it's just not like uh you know, each one of these providers is responsible uh for their customers in a qualified scheduling entity there is a provider of last resort scheme um But, you know, it's very expensive to fall into the provider of last resort. And each one of the retailers here is responsible for, you know, uh, generating their own bills, collecting from their customers, uh, acquiring customers, uh, doing so in in a certain way. So, uh, you know, within the confines of what can be done from a consumer protection perspective. So the consumer protection rules are extraordinarily strong here Um, and they're very much in the customer's favor. So it's a very, very, you know, if a retailer doesn't bill correctly and they don't get paid, they still have to pay their wires bills or, you know, they'll be blown up out of market. If they don't, you know, if they don't arrange for their wholesale commodity supply, ERCOT will step in to, to provide it in the very, very short term. But if they can't pay their bills, they're, they're, those customers get transitioned to other providers. So it's a the consequences are high and it's a very it's like you would expect in any other business. And so it's it's real. It's real competitive markets here in, in the areas that are open. There's still a few areas they didn't force the municipal utilities to open. So like Austin and San Antonio and a couple of the other municipal utilities were not forced to open. But yeah, it's a it's a very, very dynamic environment here. And so, you know, when we get this a lot, too, where there's, you know, always someone that's, you know, pining away for the days of the regulated you know world. And, you know, a lot of times folks that, you know, that, that, that have these thoughts or they, they uh, champion those ideas, they're, they're really not armed with all the facts. And some of it is uh, what I see is, you know, someone's carrying somebody else's water. <laughs> but uh, but, you know, what, all I can tell you is that uh, today uh, in, in Texas, in, the, in these competitive markets, I pay less than or equal to what I paid 20 years ago when we first opened the market. And so, you know, what we pay in the competitive markets in Texas, you know, folks here pay between nine and 11 cents per kilowatt hour, as opposed to stuff in the mid to upper twenties in California. So we, and we have built basically an entirely brand new generation infrastructure in the state over the course of the last 25 years. Um, We still have, you know, some of our old solid fuel plants and we still have our, Two nuclear stations, but the entire generation fleet has basically been rebuilt, and uh, we have extremely cost-effective electricity supply. Um, you know, for folks here, people like to come. There's this idea we saw last year that somehow competition had something to do with um, the, the, the the freeze effects last year. And if you look at it, I, th- I think that's absolutely 100% untrue. It has nothing to do with that. In fact. The, the entity that has racked up the biggest bills of short paying to ERCOT uh, is a co-op or two of 2 co-ops here in the state of Texas. that didn't arrange for or were massively underserving their own customers. So it's it has nothing to do. It's not a failure of, of the competitive marketplace at all.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. And you mentioned the generation system has been renewed over the past 20, 25 years. And yeah, solar, wind. Could you describe maybe both how it was renewed but also the incentive because if it's this choice that consumers can make did that have an impact on the launch of more renewable energy projects
1: yeah so i mean the first revolution that happened was um you know going back like i said in the late 90s um now that we opened it up and you know texas is a relatively business friendly environment um they don't make it really hard for you to invest capital here in infrastructure, which is nice, Um, certainly benefits Texans. But, um, you know, the first thing that happened is way back when, um, I don't know if you remember when uh, in 2004, there was a hurricane that came through Ivan in 2005, we had Katrina and Rita. And so the natural gas prices that we were looking at in the United States you know, today I know we're sitting in with a, like a $4, an MMBTU handle on them and everyone's freaking out about how expensive it is. But, um, even as back in the, um, 2005 timeframe, I mean, I remember we had a fortune majeure event at Henry hub and it sort of settled at 14 bucks. And so it was very, we, we had gas prices between five and $7 in an MMBTU was very common before all the shale gas revolution started. And so. What, what happened was is folks rightly came in and looked at this and they said, Hey, look, the old, the generation fleet in Texas is, uh, is natural gas. It's natural gas on the margin. It's clean. It's not coal. Um, but these are all these old inefficient gas steam plants. They're these older technologies that are maybe uh, their conversion. We always call it like a, we always think about these things in terms of heat rate. So I think it's a, it's an MMBTU per kilowatt hour conversion. So, uh, how efficient is this plant in converting its fuel into electricity and so a lot of these old gas steam plants uh, would be in the you know some of them would be in the 13 and a half 13 the really bad ones and then some of the newer ones might be in the 10 or 11 MMBtu per kilowatt hour range i think that's right i always get the the kilo and kilo and mega sort of but we we always would say hey if it's seven dollars times 13 that's going to tell you what it is per megawatt hour justin i'm not going to correct you but uh, maybe
0: someone in my audience will but uh you're, you're good with me
1: <laughs> so uh what happened was that folks did the math and they said hey um with gas at seven dollars in mbtu or 750 or my projection of gas being out here if i build a brand new combined cycle facility that's you know a, an F class, GE F class, or, you know, their Mitsubishi made these same kind of class of generation. I can basically produce it for 7.2, uh, a 7.2 7, heat rate. And I can capture that difference between, you know, 10 and 7.2. I, I can make maybe 20 or $30 a megawatt hour by selling, by putting this new power plant. It's just gonna be that much more efficient. And they're, they're banking on the uh, old inefficient uh machines setting the marginal price for the market and so uh we had what i think of as like the oklahoma land rush uh, in in uh in building brand new efficient state-of-the-art uh combined cycle generator over twenty four thousand megawatts of of combined cycle generation was built let's just call it from like 1998 through probably 2007 Wow. Um, and there's been some done after that. But it was the idea of the investment thesis that all these guys had. And they put their capital at risk. They didn't it didn't they weren't guaranteed they were going to get this back out of the ratepayers. They were they had an investment thesis that said that they were going to win by being more efficient. And uh, as it turned out, that wasn't the case
0: <laughs> because
1: because they all built and they all they all built to a point where they were all competing with each other at variable costs. But this is exactly what you expect to see out of a dynamic market, right? These are yeah. these are the these are truly micro and you know 101 types of principles at play. We're just talking about this in the magnitude of billions of dollars yeah. of capital. So that was kind of the first, you know, the first thing that we that we saw was a big revolution here and so you know that was done we built 24,000, let's just say the nameplate capacity of the system was in the 70 or 80,000 megawatt, just the total nameplate capacity of the system at that time. So uh-huh. It's a very large, it was almost a third of it was rebuilt without, without signing up any of these customers under any long-term obligation with no, no guarantees of cost recovery. Uh-huh. So that actually was a, this amazing thing when we first opened from a, a competitive markets perspective. So we opened the markets, the customers were used to paying these legacy high tariff rate stuff. And we opened them into a wholesale market that was in the midst of collapse through oversupply. So it was a a huge, huge windfall for consumers here uh, in Texas at that time. And, you know, there's there's been a continuity of that. So and, and as time went on, especially in because of the way we're set up in Texas and because there are multiple potential counterparties, as well as a renewable portfolio standard as part of competition here. Then we started to see a lot of the wind developers come in 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 that same time frame. Let's just call it um, 2003, four, you know, and and really to this day, you know, we're seeing less wind that's dropping off. We're seeing more solar today in Texas. But with the production tax credits, um, you know, and some of the other um, hooky jooky that was was done uh, to incent building those it was a natural fit for, for, I think some of those to be built here in Texas, they're all very geographically proximal to each other. They all tend to be in a certain area, not quite the panhandle, but in West Texas where the, you know, we have a ton of open space. There's a lot of, you know, farming that happens there and ranching that happens there. So, um, site leases were relatively inexpensive. Uh, we had a very transparent, robust wholesale market. And so, um, it, it, and with, with a production tax credit as a guaranteed revenue stream to a lot of these entities, we had the same thing. We just, there's this huge explosion in building wind capacity. Um, today, I think, uh, last time I looked at, I think we have about 34,000 megawatts of wind in Texas. Um, and that puts, you know, Texas is the fifth largest producer of wind in the world, just the state of Texas. And so the last time I looked at it, I think that Germany, India, China, I think China's first and in Germany, India, the United States. I mean, one of their, but we're in the denominator for the United States number. So, wow, like a big portion of it, just a huge proportion. And that's, that sort of is creating its own challenges, to be honest with you, because it's a non-dispatchable generation. We don't have a little bit of it that we're trying to integrate. It's a humongous amount. And so, um, but it's because there's a market, it's hedgeable. There are downstream counterparties. It's, it's a dynamic, robust wholesale market that provides opportunities for, you know, equity capital to get comfortable and project financing. Now, of course, those projects are very much dependent upon, I don't know that they would be as economically viable, but for some of the other incentives that are in place associated with them. Um, but, you know, the, the natural resources that we have here in terms of uh, the profile of wind potential, uh, as well as the relatively low cost of siting. And, and the fact that we don't have a gargantuan regulatory burden in getting those built, and you know we don't have certificates of, of you know convenience and need that you have to go through a bunch of hoops. I mean, there's definitely you have to do things. You know, there's still oversight and regulation, but it's not overly burdensome, and it's easy for folks to want to come in and invest capital to try to, to try to make those things happen. So. And somewhat interestingly, I don't know if this is a happy circumstance or if it's, you know, by design um, because of the cost reductions. But now we have the same thing happening with us adding solar into our mix. And so one of the things that we saw with adding such large quantities of wind is It creates some big price dislocations, and it makes things difficult for the balance of the thermal fleet to manage around. And uh, it just so happens, if you look at the wind profile of how we tend to generate our wind, a lot of it, you know, in the very early morning hours, and a lot of it kind of in the it's these transitions. It's transition nighttime to daytime, and daytime to nighttime. It sets up that cooling and warming, uh huh, Uh -huh. right. And so, uh, but it doesn't do very well right in the middle of the heat of the day. Um, which, you know, solar seems to do pretty good right in the middle of the day. So, um, the products that are really needed that are market-based products, um, solar actually fits pretty well because of the situation we were in with having this abundance of wind capacity. So what what we're seeing today is, um, I, will have to go back and look. I was looking yesterday. We, we produced not our nameplate capacity, but we produced, I think, uh, one of the hours yesterday, 7,000 megawatts of solar. And I know that there are another 18,000 megawatts of projects that have signed interconnection agreements that will be online here in the next 18 months. So, so it's a, again, it's this open dynamic market that allows for folks to come in and invest that capital. And we're not burdening the, the producers or the rate payers here or the consumers here with having to guarantee anybody cost recovery on those things and and so i think it's it's part of that dynamic environment that, that you know you were asking me about
0: mm-hmm. before and you mentioned the let me i uh i really like the description that you just provided about the d- dynamic environment low regulation and th- it's it's really interesting and but you also mentioned the tax credit and some hooky pooky or something like that you but we'll leave of course that's a
1: very that's a very uh technical term
0: yes but I was just wondering about the the tax credit and I know there was some disputes or I don't know a lot of discussion over the when that was being phased out and whether it be extended but um from your perspective how much did the tax credit enable this to uh, the wind industry to get going on its feet at least
1: Yeah I don't I don't think it could have happened absent those incentives mm-hmm. Yeah mm-hmm. I, I would just it just doesn't seem to me that um you know, some people have have said that um, you know the wind, the wind facilities are tax credit generators that also happen to produce some electricity from time to time. So, um, okay. I don't I don't know that you could have built the wind on straight economics. Now, I'm not a subject matter expert on the the you know EPC or the you know construction side or the costs associated with the installed capacity on on those. I know that there's been massive increases in efficiency and, you know, decreasing costs as you would expect to see from a big ramp, not only just here in the U S but globally is more and more folks. Um, and you know, I look at some of the plants that were put into service in the early 2000s versus some of the stuff that was put in. I mean, some of these original, you know, units are, you know, like a quarter of a megawatt or, you know, these tiny little generators and some of these big ones now are like over four megawatts a piece. So, it 's been an amazing technological you know change that we've seen uh, moving there but uh, I don't think and the way we always the, the way I saw it on my, my end of it not being in the business of owning or operating wind was you know we would see prices in, in West Texas where a lot of that wind is in real time during certain periods of time go to negative go to negative numbers where folks are paying to be able to put their electricity into the system Wow there's too much have it uh-huh. yeah like and so we're like why would anyone want to run at negative numbers why don't you just shut it down and the answer was well there's a production tax credit that's generated for every megawatt so they have it they they're going to keep running that until they get to that point of indifference between their their tax credit and uh so you know and, and you know they all built in that area and and the state came together later the the public utilities commission said we have a problem that a lot of that generation capacity is bottlenecked in the in the far west Texas, and so they came up with a structure, whether you know folks like it or don't like it, where they did force the ratepayers into uh, subsidizing for their own benefit. Theoretically, they they put a project called CREZ, which is a competitive renewable energy zone, and they built transmission capacity from those areas so that folks would be able to actually export that power and get it into these load centers um and so the the ratepayers did step up for that and that's something that you know we built those facilities and you know to be hand in glove but they're also receiving the benefit associated with you know energy that that theoretically has zero variable cost outside of maybe major maintenance so yeah exactly
0: oh it's it's a really interesting story goes i would just say it goes right along with the theory of innovation and bringing out new technologies where there is government support and then it gets its footing and then it takes off. It can really develop on on its own. So for and, sure and and access. I just wanted to to switch a little bit um towards towards your your interest and why you decided to live life n- not just as a lonely energy trader on the ground. <laughs> so so we had and I didn't I didn't bring up Enron before. It's always an interesting story, but um maybe as I understand, Fulcrum Energy was your first uh, company that you co-founded, and the description of it was it was made in the ashes, or uh, that's my description afterwards yeah, of Enron. Sure. Could you describe that that time period, and then why did you decide to begin your own company?
1: Sure. So uh, as time had progressed, actually, I never worked for Enron, but you know, they were, unfortunately or fortunately, they were a big company. Uh, Big fish in, in our industry at the time. I actually worked for the largest competitor to them, and so it was it was really enlightening for us because we could never figure out like we would <laughs> we'd be like doing everything we could, and we'd, we'd see them report earnings, and you're like, dude, how's that even possible? Like we killed ourselves, and we made X, and those guys made ten times that. And we're like, this market is just not that big. How are they doing that? You know, well, I guess we found out later. But <laughs> okay. um, so over the years at Dineg, you know, I started. Uh, I sort of laugh about being a lowly power trader. To be honest with you, that's, you know, uh, in a lot of organizations at the time, that was the pinnacle, right? So everyone wanted to be in trading. And so I started uh, in very short term trading and ended up running one of our regional trading desks. And then we started acquiring assets. And that was a beginning of a of mind opening exercise for me. Um, trading, trading wholesale electricity is a very, let's just I think about it as almost a two-dimensional exercise. You're trading the same products with the same terms and conditions at the same time. The market opens at the same time. It closes at the same time. Now, you're incorporating and you're looking for pattern recognition. Uh, You're trying to incorporate information and come to decision points quickly or more quickly than somebody else. But it's kind of a two-dimensional chess game. I was very intrigued with the, when we started adding generation, we started acquiring generation companies and we started developing our own power plants. To me, it was like it opened a third dimension. So now I I have a plant that is actually an option to generate electricity every hour, every minute. And so it's not, it's not a one size fits all. It's not a, it's not a certain product. It has, it has this dynamicism associated with it. And so I absolutely loved that because I felt like I had an incremental degree of freedom. In, in being able to kind of put my mind to how do we, how do we manage it, manage and administrate you know, these, these assets in the marketplace that are, that are merchant, you know, they, they, if we don't, if we don't make uh, the right kind of sales decisions or we don't make the right kind of hedging decisions and, and handle the logistics on fuel, et cetera, you know, we're in trouble because we have billions of dollars invested in this infrastructure. So uh, that was, I love that. And that was just such a huge uh, uplift in, in, you know, in, In my professional satisfaction um so what had happened at that time was not only you know donagy we owned quite a bit of our own generation capacity we also managed a lot of third-party generation you know there were other uh companies that wanted to come in they wanted to participate they might build a plant there were there were definitely independent power producers that were good at building but they may not fully understand the wholesale market or they had done a long-term deal with somebody but they tended to use a lot of the energy merchant companies either as part of their hedging structure or to handle the logistics for them. And the, the, let's just say the commercial logistics, uh, in those businesses. And when Enron collapsed, I think the entire industry started to reel from one, what was the, what was the immediate blowback? Like, are we gonna get paid for what Enron owes us, but which, uh, you know, I think a lot of people (laughs) didn't but the question was okay well now and as a trading organization you're highly dependent upon your credit capacity right and it's your it's your what are your what do my credit facilities look like and what do my lenders say and and so as you might well imagine everyone's like um we're gonna we're gonna seriously revisit what you guys are doing and how your credit you know what we're gonna let happen here so many of these companies started to have to restructure their corporate debt and their corporate facilities to exclude third-party beneficiaries. Like you can't post credit on behalf of another power plant that you're managing. And so what happened is a lot of these independently owned or third-party power plants, they kind of got thrown to the wolves a little bit. And that's the opportunity that I saw with another gentleman that I had worked with at the time is to say, you know, the same types of, logistics services that we're providing to our own generation fleet we have this this void in the marketplace with all these people that don't know how to source fuel they don't know how to sell their wholesale commodity you know there's a there is a big opportunity to start something new to to get in there and provide a solution to this problem and that's that's exactly what we did
0: mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so so you so so can we back up a little bit? I understand, but sure. I don't understand fully so there was basically generation units built uh as I would say investment opportunities and they were really happy because they could just sell it and they could hire another firm to manage their asset for them because they had the capital to build it, but they didn't have the know- how to. Say operate it to bring in the, the resource to run it, and then to sell it onto the market. So then, what you saw was oh, the, the, the the rules changed, so they couldn't hire these external uh, parties to um, what manage it for them. Correct. Right. Me? The
1: external parties got decimated. They just did. Okay. They all of a sudden didn't exist, or were or were told by their lenders, you can't get, you can't provide those services anymore.
0: Oh, okay. So the rules didn't change, just they were told not to do that.
1: Right. Because otherwise what they're doing is in order to manage a third-party asset, you're usually would be extending them credit by buying their fuel. And then, and then you would have a a receivable from them on the electricity side. So all the, you know, most of the lenders would say, it's one thing for you guys to spend your money buying gas for your own power plants It's another thing for you guys to be using your money by gas for a third party power plant where you might have a, a, a very small if or almost no margin between, you know, what you're charging for some of that. So it was a reckoning of the way all of the energy merchant companies that were still left standing afterwards, how they were utilizing their own credit capacity.
0: Okay, okay. For all their
1: business lines.
0: Yes. And then we won't go to the history of the whole sector of Samuel Ensel at the founding the 1920s and the collapse of everything. But probably that's where some of the fear was stemming from, was there was too much of this, I don't know, what's going on, who knows, type of right. activity. Okay, so then you set up this company with, with your partner, because you were able to, if you had enough what, clients, be able to service them
1: as a single right. entity. Right. What we found was that, you know, most of the most of the folks that still that now own these assets is uh, oftentimes the primary equity sponsors had defaulted and actually the lenders had taken back these assets. Wow. Right. So because they might have lost their hedges, they might have, you know, had a hedge and, you know, the, the company they're with had gone under. So, and you know, some of the banks and some of these other folks that are not one, they're not long term holders of those assets. And two is that they don't typically have a subject matter expertise in trying to recover something on their investment. They're, they're trying to buy their time, make sure this is margin positive so that they can, you know, eventually sell those assets back off later and recover, you know, their at risk capital. So, so that's exactly what we did is who is out here, who's in trouble. And what happened with them is, you know, a, a plant that's, you know, gone through bankruptcy or that has, you know, a bank as its primary equity sponsor, they have better credit than all the energy merchants did to begin with. So we could usually bargain for better credit on, on the plant's behalf by itself. So it wasn't dependent upon, Hey, if you leave, then, you know, my gas contracts go, no, 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 we, we need, you need to have privity with your fuel suppliers and you need to have privity with your, you know, electricity customers so that it's a self-contained business in and of itself. And uh, we'll provide the logistics, Around all the commercial execution to make that a reality for for those folks. And so that's exactly what we did. Yeah. And it was uh and it was
0: fun. Excellent. And how how I don't know what the follow-up question is, because I want to switch to your energy ogre because it has oh, a better okay. name to it. But but my <laughs> my follow-up question is how how did Fulcrum develop over time and what did you do with it before you uh came into Energy Ogre?
1: Sure. Well there's it actually is a natural segue between the two. So um you know, the, the original opportunity that we really focused on, and that's really where I came from, was the wholesale and the generation world. And interestingly, um, at my time at Donagy, we actually had acquired a company called Ilanova And Illinois owned um, a, a regulated utility that was in the process of deregulating in Illinois. It was Illinois Power. And so I inherited a generation, and an unregulated generation fleet. And then we had a of full requirements, which means you serve the demand to whatever it is on a, on a formulaic basis. So um, we had another deal that looked like that in Texas as well, that was before the market opened to deregulation here. So we'd been doing a lot of demand forecasting and we've been doing a lot of serving load um, in our wholesale worlds. And when we started uh, Fulcrum. You know, interestingly, the market here opened. We started that in 2003, early 2003. The market opened here in Texas to retail competition January 1st of 2002. So there were a number of these really small retail electricity providers that had started, you know, getting up and running and low barriers to entry. And it was a very dynamic environment because the legacy rate structure was very high in comparison, as we talked about before, you know it's almost like shooting fish in a barrel to these new folks that were coming in because the wholesale market was like half of what, you know, these guys are charging on a legacy basis. So, but these guys all, you know, not maybe not all of them, but many of the independent retailers that we talked to, they didn't understand the wholesale market at all. They didn't really understand who do I buy from? How do I buy? How do I forecast my demand? And um, you know, if you think about it, Demand is the opposite side of the same coin as your managing generation. I mean, they work hand in glove. So you inherently have a good feel for one, at least on a portfolio-wide basis, if you understand the other. And so we started providing logistics services to these small retail electricity providers as well. So that was, you know, there's uh, other scheduling services uh, helping them purchase their wholesale commodity, helping them uh, forecast their demand and look at different scenarios and you know, to long story short, there is that we eventually realized that um, we were doing some things in terms of supplying some wholesale commodity to some of them. And we thought, you know, uh, we're going to be able to finance finance this better. And we're going to actually be able to de-risk ourselves by just owning those, rolling up our customers. And so that's what we did. We became, we started acquiring a couple of our customers and to become focused on actually being a retail electricity provider. So,
0: so, so you had the generate because you were selling the generation, and so de- to de-risk, you're like, well, let's buy our customers who are buying the electricity. What kind of customers did you buy? Who, who,
1: who? Yeah, so we had a couple of small, um, you know, we were not swimming in it since you know we started Fulcrum with uh, my and my, my partners milk money, and you know we were by no stretch of the imagination um, having a lot of free cash. So we, we were very fortunate; we got a lot of good bounces at the time, but. Uh, we acquired you know, some of our folks that were pretty small. Uh, one, one of the other entities that we acquired was much larger, um, but we just grew them organically. We, we started figuring these things out. And uh, as time went on, a lot of the generation, um, you know, once the banks had them and then they went to auction, then you might have had private equity uh, or hedge funds would come in and acquire them to take that risk off the bank's balance sheet. And then those private equity firms or uh, those guys would hold on to them and look to sell them to the natural buyers, the the legacy incumbent utilities. And so a lot of these assets ended up making their way back, you know, into an, into the you know strategic buyers' hands, and 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 really getting rid of the need for someone to have a company like Fulcrum manage their generation resources for them. So, so that's that's where we ended up getting to was the generation business as it matured. And we saw more renewables and and we, we scheduled a lot of renewable. We scheduled a lot of wind as well, but that business and, and our opportunity there started to wane at the same time that the retail business really was, was picking up a lot of steam. So we actually transitioned as I would never would have thought this when I started in the business, but, um, you know, we, we really did transition from, um, a uh, wholesale generation focused business to a retail electricity focused provider exclusively in Texas. So it was a, it was an interesting transition. Wow. It's,
0: it's really amazing then. So, so the market uh, on the generation side was changing so much that the opportunity became on the retail side then. Right.
1: Uh-huh. I always think about it as a pendulum swinging from one direction to the other. Right. So, Um, and, and we, we started to transition when the opportunity really focused on the retail side, that's where the margins were in this business. Um, and you know, a a power generation facility has to be able to generate a decent margin in order for someone to pay us to manage it as a third party. So when they, when they get pinched and they get squeezed, um, there, there's just not as much opportunity for us in that space, which is fine. Yeah, excellent. We transitioned over and we grew those businesses. I mean, I think we were, um. I sold it to a Canadian company in 2011 I think it closed in 2012, but I mean, I think we were the third or fourth largest independent retail electricity provider company in Texas by the time I sold it. And, and that yeah. really directly dovetailed into the energy ogre experience for me. Um, there were a lot of things that I saw about um, the way customers navigated their interactions with retailers um, that I didn't like, that I thought really wasn't serving Texans. And some of it had nothing to do with um, some of its translation, right? So uh, you know, the, the the way the way the whole uh, statute was written here in Texas, it's very very customer focused and very very customer forward from a protections perspective, but it's written in such a way, and that whole scheme is really predicated upon pretty specific involvement on part of the customer, like the customer being actively engaged in the process and whether it's due to busy lifestyles or whatever have you, because folks have not been able to be quite as engaged and because it's probably harder to actually source good information to, you know, to, to separate the wheat from the shaft, so to speak, in terms of information. What we were seeing were, you know, as a general works great. We had a lot of these really suboptimal outcomes for individual customers and no one had ever really fully aligned themselves with the customer segment. I mean, we have consumer advocates and folks that kind of do that in the aggregate, but in terms of someone that aligned themselves as, as a fiduciary for the individual customer, nobody had ever done that before. So we started to think, is there a way for us to build a business to, to really extract the value that the competitive markets offer to everybody here that that is there. A lot of people are not fully maximizing that benefit and they don't really understand how big of a, what the order of magnitude is of that. Like it's, if you, if you thought you were missing out on $10 a year of opportunity by going through a bunch of brain damage. Okay. But if you realize it might be a couple thousand dollars a year, then it's a different, it's a different exercise. So, so that's what we did. We, we tried to figure out how can we build a business to serve customers in that way that, I mean, we're not going to make a, a gargantuan amount of money doing this. It's a little bit of a labor of love because um, we're, we're believers in, in 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 what this whole structure can afford. You know, Texans, um, you know, there, there'll be no Tahitian islands purchased in our future doing this. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, it's been uh, how can we integrate emerging technologies you know, when we had our retail electricity provider, the cloud computation revolution had not really begun. And we spent millions of dollars on infrastructure with our own data warehouse and, you know, our own dedicated rack space and all the servers. And, you know, we just never could have done energy ogre that way. But um, when you start getting the cost of storing and computational power on a variable basis as low as it gets now, this is a very data intensive business. And it, it you know, opens up those possibilities. And so we were able to take some of the energy market subject matter expertise, marry this up with these emergent technologies and do some of these amazing computational things that I never thought I'd be able to get to before. And, uh, you know, make a business out of it that is, you know, entirely focused on, you know, serving Texans. Uh-huh, excellent. Uh,
0: could you actually explain a bit more what Energy Ogre as a company does?
1: Sure. So, uh, in, in the Texas market, if you were to, let's say you moved here, um, and you, besides the, the shock from, uh, (laughs) Budapest to, uh, to Houston, but if you were to move here, um, and you'd say, okay, well, I I need to set up my water. I need to set up an, I need to set up my electricity service. And so if you were to go out to Google, you know, you might get the, the state uh, the Public Utilities Commission ran a website. It's called Power to Choose. And there's just a number of different, if you Google it, you're going to get saturated with a bunch of information because literally uh, the last time I looked at it, no, they all are not active, but there were over 140 registered retail electricity providers in Texas. And in any given time, like in these, in the Houston area, there might be 200 to a thousand different rate plans that are available. Jeez. So there are, there are just a ton of opportunities and it's very easy for people to get analysis paralysis and sometimes you know the um the way the 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 plans themselves are structured um it's not always what you see is what you get so um that's a problem so what we looked at at energy Ogre is to say how do we solve this problem for a consumer that either is moving here or is here because it's the same problem like you you have a provider and you want to go see when your contract comes up can i do better than this there's a lot of information that's available if you google it or you're looking you're searching but it's very difficult to understand like some of it's gobbledygook some of it is greek and it's just i think people they do the best they can or some people just throw their hands up and say forget it i'm just going to renew with my existing provider and i don't know if this rate is a good rate but i don't want to mess with that kind of situation So what we did at energy, Ogre to say, is there a way with all these different rates, some of them are time of use plans. Some of them are, you know, if you use X amount per month and you get a fixed bill credit, you know, and other ones are, it's, is this amount with a base charge and this amount of an energy charge. Can we go through and find a way to put all those plans together on an apples to apples basis? And so... Each one of these plans by statute has to have an electricity fax label associated with them. And that's basically the DNA. It tells you how they construct. It's the, not entirely, but it tells you formulaically what they're doing to create their rates. And what you find pretty rapidly if you look through those things is it's, these guys don't offer a rate. It's a curve, right? So it's a series of price quantity pairs. At three kilowatts, here's the calculated effective rate at five kilowatts. Here's the, all the way to infinity. So we found a way to pull in through, you know, our intelligence systems can pull in this information, dissect them by their EFL after we train, we train how this works. So now we can get every one of these rate plans that's available in the marketplace in a coordinate system that's identical so we can look at them all apples to apples to each other and figure out what their effective rates look like for every kilowatt that that is out there in in the process and we also had this uh big change several years after the market opened where we transitioned away to all all of our demand meters into smart meters Mm, yeah so every one of these customers now has a unique demand profile that you know the granularity is up to 15 minutes. So the first generation of what energy Ogre was doing was I'm going to put thousands of different rate plans or hundreds or whatever is available in the marketplace. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to pull them in every 15 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever that looks like to make sure that they're updated and refreshed. And I'm going to pull the usage information with the customer's consent. So I can see I've got, you know, 500 supply curves and I've got a demand profile. And now I can start to do some intersections where I'm looking at what's the lowest cost to serve this particular demand profile, just math, right? Yeah, it yeah. becomes, and so um, then we have to do the, the balance of it. It's not The answer is great, but now we actually have to make it happen. <laughs> You know, it's like the old IBM commercials where folks come in, so we need to do this, this, and then they say, okay, great, make it happen. Oh, we, we don't do that. We're just, no. I we, was we, just we, thinking we
0: your company should be called Energy Heroes or maybe Energy Data Heroes because I can't even imagine what it must have been like writing the software and just figuring all that out.
1: So Yeah, we've yeah. got some amazing developers for sure. So anyway, that that's what we've been doing, and that's that's you know at the heart of, of what Energy is. Ogre has been all about. Mm-hmm. Excellent.
0: I know the company Opower, or the old company Opower, I think that was taken over by Cisco, uh, as my memory recalls. But and, and they they try to influence their customers' consumption habits, or they try to educate them to reduce, how to reduce their bills. Do you do something similar?
1: Yeah, that's the next generation of what, I think that's, that's really what will have to come into play as we start to get, um, as we get more variability and more more flexibility uh uh less predictability on the supply side of the equation you know unless we really develop a commercially viable grid scale storage solution which i don't think they're besides pump storage and some of these other converting technologies there there really aren't you know batteries are not going to work in the short run they're just not big enough and i think that it's probably the wrong technology especially using lithium ion but um Uh, outside of that, you know, the way to the way if folks really want to have a greater amount of penetration of renewables, I mean, we're going to we're going to be the the guinea pigs for this in Texas, right? We're going to have a huge, huge proportion of our generation coming from, you know, completely unpredictable renewable resources and trying to maintain reliability. And that's a that's a big challenge that one of the one of the most effective tools is to be able to start the process of introducing price elasticity of demand in the equation and start to be able to more closely marry, uh, how we are consuming electricity with how it's being produced. Right. And so that's been always a sacred cow and that's never really been introduced before, but honestly with, you know, again, it's, it's taking advantage of emerging technologies through the IOT of things, types of there, there are ways to start to dynamically, um, schedule loads. And, and the thing is, it doesn't have to be all the big ones. You know. Us putting together and aggregating a 1, thousand, a hundred thousand small loads, those are all meaningful and important. They have just the same amount of value as, as doing one large one. So it's harder, it's orders of magnitude more difficult to do that, um, but we're really excited about it. And that's something that Energy Ogre is really focused on here. I think the dynamic market in Texas will, will be the perfect proving ground for this technology. Um, and and it will give us the opportunity to take that to other parts of the country you know, as time moves forward. It's
0: almost like a virtual power plant
1: is what you're creating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's negawatts, as they call it, right? Yes. Negative watts. So. Yes.
0: Excellent. Justin, uh, I just want to thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to me today. Of course. Enjoyed it a ton. Thank you for listening to the My Energy 2050 podcast. I hope you got a lot out of this episode with Justin. As you can see, he has tremendous knowledge about how the system works in Texas and this balance between market, I would say opportunity, entrepreneurship, and also the role that regulation and policies play both at the state level and the national level. Thank you for listening. And really, I just wanna make sure that the takeaway from this is when you see a company like Energy Ogre, that's customer-facing. Think of all the people working for that company and the opportunities and even more, more importantly, probably the struggle that it takes to get a company like that working. Thank you very much for supporting the My Energy
1: 2050 podcast.